Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to be back together in a sanctuary to worship God together? <laughs> I, I don't know if it comes with age, but I, I find myself crying more regularly. And I, as we walked in and as I turned around and saw you, I just began to weep tears of joy. We haven't been in a sanctuary in worship since, what, February, end of February, a year ago, and this is fantastic. Yeah, we're grateful for this invitation to uh, be here this morning and uh, to join you in worship and to celebrate being back together in the sanctuary. Uh, we're very appreciative. It's uh, always a blessing to be back with people who are very familiar and to look and notice that people haven't changed a bit. Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, for those of you who know, um, we know us from being here years ago, I did have brown hair. That's one thing that was very different, but uh, had more hair too. But um, just to reconnect, and it almost feels like we just saw you, you know, like last week. So anyway, we're grateful to be part uh, of this family and with you this morning in worship. Tim, a little curveball. I was going to ask Connie to read scripture. Can she use this microphone that Mindy was just using? Thank you. Uh, as we continue together, I'm going to ask Connie to read the passages that we're looking at this morning, and uh, then we'll... I'll share God's word with us. It is a joy to be with you this morning. And I too experienced that profound joy as we were singing together, joining our voices. We've been worshiping on Zoom. Yeah. And so we would sing, but it was just the two of us. And to join our voices this morning with yours, praising our God, I felt overwhelmed with joy, and I imagine you may have felt that too. This morning's scripture reading is from Exodus 1.18, excuse me, 1.8 through 2.25, and then John 14.25 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But more... But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she may live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the 
dealt with the midwives well, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went up and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that it was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds uh, on the bank of the river. His sister stood a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her attendants walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and said to her, said to her maid, bring it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman, women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, and he went out to his people and saw their forced labor, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, why did you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water the father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. And Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. So Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son and named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. And then John 14, 25 to 27. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thanks, Connie. That's okay. Connie and I left this congregation I was where, where I served here as associate pastor in 2001. We accepted an invitation to go over to Good Shepherd Church in Los Alamitos, and uh, we accepted that invitation. I first went as a stated supply pastor and ultimately became the designated and then installed pastor at that congregation until retiring six years ago at the end of June 2015. Uh, we returned to our home in San Diego and, uh, well, enjoyed being there until th about two months ago when we moved from San Diego to Carpinteria to be closer to two of our three daughters, Rachel and Rebecca and their families, and uh, somewhat about the same distance from our middle daughter, Sarah, who lives on Catalina Island. Before I retired, a person said to me, Jim, when you retire, one thing you'll have is time to think. And he was right. It was good to have time to think. In fact, I purposely set aside time in order to process and think about some of the questions that had haunted me for a long time that I didn't have time to think about. Questions like, why do we call them apartments when they're all together? <laughs> why do we drive on parkways and we park in driveways? <laughs> and there was a third question that I wanted to process, and that is, why is it a penny for your thoughts but you have to put your two cents in. Who gets the other penny? <laughs> anyway, seriously, there has been a time to kind of slow down and, and stop and think about life. And looking back on the journey of life, my life, has been interesting to do and rewarding in the process. We are all on a journey, a journey of life, a journey of faith in relationship with God. The book of Exodus talks about the journey of the people of Israel, and I'm sure you're familiar with the account. We heard a lot, a good part of it this morning. But here, this people of Israel, the, the descendants of Jacob, who was later called Israel, enslaved in Egypt, 200 years later, they've grown to be such a massive nation that the Pharaoh is getting a little bit uneasy that they could turn against us, they could join our enemies, they could do us in, and they took steps to oppress these people. In fact, Pharaoh Tutmose III became so threatened by the Israelites that he took some drastic measures, as we heard. Kill all the baby boys. Make them work harder. Oppress them, oppress them all the more. But in spite of those heinous and brutal measures, what, guess what happened? You know what happened. The nation flourished, became over a million people strong. It's in that kind of severe, oppressive political situation that Moses is born. This one that God has chosen to lead the people from slavery and lead them back to the land that was promised to them to enable them to come out of slavery in Egypt and live as a nation. But thankfully, none of the measures that Pharaoh took were able to thwart the purposes of God. None of the edicts that Pharaoh passed could stop 
God's purposes from being accomplished. Nothing that the Pharaoh could do would undermine the plans that God had for Israel and for Moses. Well, the account goes on. We know Moses is born. He's taken care of. He's providentially preserved from death, and he grows up at age 40. He becomes aware of his Hebrew roots. He goes to the land of Goshen where the Hebrew people are living and kills a person to break up a fight. He's found out. He flees from Egypt, heads out to the wilderness of Midian. He's on a journey, just like we are. But the opening parts of Exodus remind us that despite the fact that Moses' journey is filled with obstacles, God's purposes will be carried out. Despite the fact his life is filled with obstacles, that journey and God's purposes in that journey will be carried out. We all know that life is difficult. We're on this journey of life and we all face obstacles. Some of those obstacles are physically, physical related. Heart disease, illness of all kinds, strokes, cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes. Just getting older is becoming more and more of an obstacle. The aches and the pains I never felt before, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We also face obstacles in terms of our relationships within a marriage relationship. Communication breaks down. It's an obstacle. We can't talk to our children. We were alienated from our parents at times. Obstacles begin to loom large in our relationships. We have difficulty with coworkers and friends. Sometimes we're disappointed by people who let us down unexpectedly. And those obstacles can loom very large in the relational part of our lives. There's also spiritual obstacles that we deal with. We find ourselves burned out at times. We find ourselves doubting. We find ourselves angry. We find ourselves unclear about our direction and purpose in life. Those become obstacles for us. And sometimes it's an uncertainty about the love of God for each one of us. Is God trustworthy? Does God care about me? Does God love me? These are obstacles that can loom very large in our lives and threaten to overwhelm us. I read about a journalist whose name is Lona O'Connor. When she was a kid, she writes about this and tells about this, I should say, she heard a Johnny Nash song, and you might be familiar with it. The title of the song is I Can See Clearly Now. Do you know the song? Say yes, or else I'll have to sing it. <laughs> oh, good, good. Whew. But she heard the song like this. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. I can see all the popsicles in my way. And she grew up thinking that the challenges in her life were like, as she put it, rows of popsicles standing in my way that were that were melting in the sun, red and green and yellow. And it was only later as an adult she realized that the real lyric of that song was, well, you know, I can see all the obstacles in my way, not popsicles. Well, the obstacles or popsicles were looming large for Moses. They were looming large for the people of Israel. At times they loom large for you and for me, and sometimes they loom large in the life of a congregation.
like this one. The obstacles can loom large on our journey of life. So I thought I'd suggest a couple of things that we can do when we face those obstacles. You can call them popsicles if you want. The first thing I thought of is, let's not panic. Let's not become panicky and discouraged by the obstacles that stand before us. God's in control. And God's intentions for us, just like God's intentions for Israel, and just like those for Moses, despite all those obstacles, God's intentions and purposes were never and will never, never, never be thwarted. Despite the obstacles, God's purposes will never be thwarted. God's in control. Don't panic. Don't become discouraged. God is bringing about the divine purposes intended for each one of us and for this congregation, just as he brought them about in the life of Moses and the people of Israel. Don't panic. The obstacles will be overcome. November 2001, we left PPC and I began as the stated supply pastor at Good Shepherd. I was in, tasked at that time trying to unite a congregation that was severely divided. And I remember saying to the Presbytery folks, if this doesn't work out, please don't just leave me out there to, you know, hanging out there to dry, as the expression is. Get me out of here and find me another call. But the congregation was divided over the vision and the, the leadership in that congregation, the direction it was heading. There were countless obstacles to that church surviving and thriving. It was divided because of the leadership that was standing back not asserting its leadership as they should, the pastors in the session as a whole, and others stepping into that vacuum and asserting their interests over the interests of the whole congregation. And that made that division even worse. There were broken relationships as people took sides in this matter and what person they were going to follow and what uh, perspective they were going to espouse. There were angry words. There were broken and hurtful, alienated spoken, I should say, in hurtful and alienating ways to other people. Rather than looking out for the good of the whole congregation, the two sides continued to war against each other. Those obstacles loomed large, but I'm glad to say one by one they were melted away like popsicles in the hot sun. New leaders emerged, and I will say after many, many town hall meetings, and small group gatherings and one-on-one -on -one conversations where people could express th their thoughts and opinions to one another, where we could come together to pray together, where we could come together and look at Scripture together and seek guidance from Scripture and from the Holy Spirit and discern what was best for Good Shepherd Church over a period of years, three years in fact, we finally found a way forward. A clear vision for ministry emerged and new leadership stepped up and espoused that vision and the church came together as that was clearly defined and clearly articulated and we began to live it out. During that process, we did our best to try to speak the truth in love, which is hard to do. 
and to extend grace to those who had different opinions on the subject and to forgive those hurts and to seek reconciliation and to welcome people back to the congregation. But I'll tell you, it was hard. And at times it was ugly. It was not a perfect process. But the church was eventually unified and able to move forward in ministry and worship and impacting the community around Los Alamitos. And it was a delight. After 14 years as pastor at that church, when the time came for me to step out into retirement, it was a joyous transition because the church was flourishing a new pastor, a young person that was identified and able to hand off the leadership to that person. The vision for the future remained clear and people worked together to fulfill that. When the obstacles loom large, don't panic. God's in control and he's melting those popsicles away. The second thought I had on this subject is when the obstacles loom large, literally see them as popsicles that will melt in front of the warmth of God's love and grace. I retired in 2015 at the end of June. After 16 months of retirement and spending time traveling with our travel trailer, which was delightful, we had an opportunity to visit Hawaii and Washington, D.C., even a trip to Europe where we spent time in Italy. 16 months, countless home improvement projects, living in a nice neighborhood with four other retired couples enjoying their company. But I remember waking to the thought one day that there's got to be more to retirement than this, as great as it was. The next Sunday, Connie and I were at our home church, Trinity Presbyterian Church, and our pastor announced that it was his final Sunday. He was going to retire, and he was going to be finished that week. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> I can remember the hairs on the back of my head kind of standing up, and I could feel the eyes of a lot of people in the congregation beginning to look my way. A couple of them came up afterwards and said, would you be available? About a week or two weeks later, I began as a pulpit supply and then the transitional pastor for about two and a half years. Five months into that time, the missions committee came to me and said, you know, it's time for our short-term mission trip. We do this every other year. And we're thinking we would like to take a group to go to the Greek island of Lesbos and work with a team of people there who are processing Syrian refugees. And there's like 5,000 refugees in this one particular, uh, I'll call it a camp, a settlement, resettlement camp for refugees. I thought about that. It seemed like a really good thing to do. They had contacts there. They knew it would work out. It would be a great experience. But I also knew coming back to El Cajon area, so we live south of El Cajon, that that city housed over 1,200 Syrian refugee families. And I said to our missions team, what if instead of spending four or $5,000 each to go for two-week vacation, well, not vacation, but a, a trip to the, the Greek Isles, what if instead we found a way to invest our lives in some of these 1,200 families? get to know them and build relationships and minister to people and become friends with them and help these folks who have come through some of the most hellish traumatic experiences that 
we could imagine, and found themselves in a strange place, aliens, literally foreigners, trying to survive. Well, I'm glad to say our mission staff person caught that vision for, for doing that, and as we prayed for God's guidance, people just came out of nowhere to help us do this. One couple I had known because they were part of the Good Shepherd Church, and they spent most of their adult life in the places like Mauritania and Mali and northern parts of India to live among Muslim people and to build relationships and share the love of Christ with them when they had the opportunity. They were now living in San Diego, training people to do just this. We encountered other people. We found about 20 people who were devoting their lives to ministering to Syrian refugees, and they helped us put together what we called Building Bridges with Our Muslim Neighbors, a two-week intensive immersion into this kind of process. In fact, our now, uh, Trinity's former missions person took that course and is holding it all around the country to help people relate to new neighbors and new people. The resource popsicle melted away. The not knowing what to do popsicle melted away. The how do we meet people obstacle popsicle melted away. Twelve people from Trinity Church and others from four other churches came together. Three pastors were involved. Twenty people trained us how to relate to Muslim people and those obstacles became popsicles and melted away. And that's when Connie and I met a family. You might, be ha you might have some familiarity with them. I'm not sure if you do. Uh, here's a photo of Ahmad and Amani Al-Radi. Is it there? Learn English. They were uh, continuing to be impacted by the trauma they had gone through. Ahmed was thrown into prison where he spent a short time and only in a, I believe, miraculous clinical error was he released from that prison in Syria. Where he never told me exactly what went on, but he told me in general terms, it was the worst thing, the things that went on were the worst things a human being can imagine. And he left it at that. One day they were in their home. They lived in a compound in their home and, and relatives' homes, and bombs began to fall. And when his brother's home was destroyed by the bomb, he grabbed his family, got into a taxi, and drove to the border and went into Jordan and never turned back. Just the clothes they had with them and a few other items. Well, when he met them, he didn't have a steady job. They were behind in their rent. They were struggling in all kinds of ways. Amani wanted to cook food and sell it. She had no transportation. Uh, we, at that point, had an extra car. And so you see that in that photo, you saw Connie handing them the keys to the Toyota Camry we were able to give to them. The Alradis have four children, three girls and a son, Ali. And that's the next picture of this family. On top of all the other obstacles this family faced at that time is the fact that their three daughters all have what's called limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Nada, who's now 14, can no longer play the violin. She was learning to play it. She can't hold it up any longer. Salam, you see in the wheelchair, is now about 12 years old, I believe, has been wheelchair bound for six years. 
Ranim, who's like the, to the right, farthest to the right, this most energetic little spark plug of a girl now has trouble walking because her feet are curving and she walks on the side of her feet. Unfortunately, there's no cure for this kind of muscular dystrophy. A huge obstacle. A few months after meeting the family, I had our, our facilities manager at Trinity Church, where I was the transitional pastor, resigned. I was determined to hire Ahmad to come and be our facilities manager, but there were obstacles. The first obstacle I encountered was one person who told me, you know, if we hire him, he might kill us. And he wasn't joking. There was an obstacle of fear. There was an obstacle also of prejudice. It was expressed this way. One person said, well, you know, these people will say anything. They're taught to lie and to take advantage of us. We can't trust him. And there was bitterness when one person asked, why should we be helping them? They're our enemy. We should be helping people who belong here. And I'm glad to say, fortunately, those obstacles, popsicles, melted away. We hired Akhmad and he came on our staff and people began to know him and love him and embraced his family. Uh, maybe we have the next picture. We enjoyed meals in their home. We had uh, their, their family connecting with other church families, having meals and picnics together. The kids were being tutored by members of our congregation and others. We helped with medical emergencies. Relationships were being built. We were helping them with language learning and overcoming the, those kind of clumsy cultural barriers that we encountered at first. Amani became... I told you I cry a lot when I get older I get. Became Connie's good friend. They'd go shopping together, go to the store together. Ahmad became like a son to me. And the family began to flourish. Well, during those earlier days with the Alradis, Ahmad would always show me this picture of a wheelchair van. And I saw the price tag associated with it, it was like $60,000. And he said, this is my dream, a wheelchair van, so I can pick up my daughter and put her in there. We can take her places. We can go and to the doctor and on and on and on. And I was overwhelmed. I thought, That's a, there's no way. I mean, Trinity Church was only like 80 people. How are we going to do that? So we stepped out, however, and began to raise money for a, a van and uh, never done quite anything quite like that. You helped us, and I want to thank you for helping raise money for that van. We had enough, uh, well, I, we didn't have 60000 We had about $20,000, but we found on Craigslist a van that was for sale, a 2014 Toyota Sienna wheelchair van, had 40,000 miles on it. It was used by a couple who no longer had need for it and their daughters were selling it along with the two electric wheelchairs. It was an amazing van, great condition. The price we got down to 18,000, I thought it was, would have been about more like 26, but we bought the van. There's a picture of it that you'll be able to see coming up next. I think, do we have it, number five? You can picture a white Toyota van, can't you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
We finished the transaction. The two daughters were there with us. I remember we were standing on the street. Cars were going by. There was a neighborhood. The van was parked there. We began to talk about the parents, their parents. They began to cry. We had like a little memorial service for her parents standing at the curb. And then we, they began to cry. Of course, I did too. And said how grateful they were, there's the van, that this was going to be used by a family that needed it so much, that it was going to benefit them so greatly. And again, thank you for your help in making that possible. While we were raising the funds, Ahmad came into my office and uh, he was working on the church campus, and he said to me, or asked me, why are you doing this for me? I'm a Muslim, you're Christians. Why are you doing this for me? I was caught off guard a little bit, but I think my answer made sense. I said, you know, because we follow Jesus, and we try to do what he says. And Jesus says we are to love God with our entire being, with all that we are and have, and that we're supposed to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. I said, I think that's why we're doing it. He stood there, began to cry. He just shook his head. He didn't say a word and walked out of the office. And then later, a few months ago, in fact, as he, on his own initiative, picked up the copy of the, the Gospels I had given to him and read them, he said, now I understand why Christians sacrifice for other people. Now I understand, he said, because that's what it says Jesus did, sacrificed for us. And he used the word us. Well, the obstacles became popsicles until a few months later when Imani was driving the van one day and another driver, this will be the next photo, ran a stop sign, hit the rear side of the van, caused it to careen off the, and across the street, literally into the wall and into the apartment. Oh, there's after they pulled it out. The vehicle was totaled. I was so disappointed. I don't think I told anyone here. It was just so disappointing. But that obstacle became a popsicle, and God melted that away. Fortunately, the van was fully insured, and Ahmad had an option to receive the money to pay for it in full and, and to keep the van. He got a little few, few dollars less, but he got to keep, keep the van. And he's a smart guy and a very capable guy. He totally repaired the van, and we had enough money to buy another one. And we bought it from a fellow who would take vans and fix them up and sell them for, to families who needed them at a real good price. So not only did we have a van that was functional, equally functional, we had extra, uh, an extra van that could be repaired and sold and a little nest egg for the family in a savings account. The obstacles became popsicles and they melted away. In fact, Magda continues to this day to buy vans, wheelchair vans, fix them up, and sell them to families who need them. The obstacles loomed large, but they became popsicles that were melted away by the love and grace and provision of our loving God. They loomed large, but they melted away, they were melted away 
by the love and grace and care of God. But it strikes me that God works through people like you and the people at Trinity Church who take Jesus seriously to love God and to love their neighbor. Thank you for doing that. I'm going to end with this. When the obstacles loom large before us, don't panic. Don't be discouraged. Remember, God's in control. God knows the outcome. God's able to remove the obstacles. And finally, when the obstacles loom large, remember the words of Jesus from John chapter 14. Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give you. I don't give peace as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Will you pray with me, please? Almighty and all-loving God, we are very aware of the obstacles in our lives individually and obstacles that are part of this community of faith. You know those obstacles. That's why we ask for your help to turn them into popsicles and melt them away by the warmth of your grace and your love and your divine purpose of reconciling all things in and through Jesus Christ. God, would you bless each one of us and this congregation as a body with your power, with your grace, with all that's needed to go through a time of transition that at times will be difficult. And most of all, will you bless us with your peace. In the name of our risen Lord Jesus, amen.